Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Glenn Packiam and John Egan, who we haven't heard from since episodes one and two. So we're really grateful to have you back. So this is going to be a fun conversation, guys, today. Uh, it is Eastertide. And so with the Christian world fresh off of the joyful celebration of Christ's resurrection, I thought it would be fun for us to talk some about hope today, the theme of hope. Now, some of our listeners might be aware that you, Glenn, just finished up defending a doctoral dissertation on the topic of hope as it relates to Christian worship. So that means that we need to start referring to you as the right reverend, no. Dr. Glenn no. Pack. And your Twitter handle for a minute there the reverend, yeah, was yeah. the Reverend Dr. G. Pack. <laughs> so I think we can expect a hope-themed rap it's coming to drop it's at coming. any point. It's very hot. It's going to be very hot. <laughs> so, um, but so you got a lot to say about this theme. You've been thinking about this for a lot of years, and now your research has gone that way. So I thought it'd be fun for our listeners just to get a chance to see what you've been working on, and then for us to talk practically about what that means in the church. So why don't we just begin by, Glenn, give us like a broad overview of your research project. What, what were you trying to do? Well, the advice that I received was research something that you care deeply about and that you are going to care deeply about for many years. Years, not just because the research will take many years, but because you don't want to pour so much of your heart into something that is sort of peripheral to your life. And so when I thought about you know my life, I've spent a lot of my years in worship ministry as a songwriter and all of that. And so I care very deeply about the modern worship movement. And secondly, I care very much about the theology of hope and particularly as a pastor, seeing how important hope is, but also having a sense that we don't quite have the same robust vision of hope that other Christians have had in other eras of the church history. So I set about to kind of ask a couple questions. What do Christians sing about when we sing about hope? Uh, what do we experience in worship services that makes us feel hopeful? And how does this compare to what the creed, for example, would say about Christian hope? And so to begin with, I structured my research to analyze songs and services. And I did that on purpose because a lot of the criticisms or critiques of modern worship, they're pretty shallow. There's a lot of drive-by criticisms, and they're really just looking at songs or song lyrics. And so they'll say, oh, these silly songs, they repeat themselves or such cheesy lyrics and blah, blah, blah. But actually, they're, they're failing to take into account that when people listen to these songs, moreover, when people sing these songs in church, something powerful happens. So you can't just study the movement by studying the songs. You have to also look at the experience. Or to put it in a technical way, you can't just look at the text. You have to look at the experience. Uh, and how did these things sort of sit side by side? And so I constructed five different models of hope from the social sciences. One was a cognitive model. Uh, one was an affective model, meaning the emotional experience. One was kind of the act of hoping. And uh, one was more of the character of hope. And then there was a theological model, okay? through church history, what is that? And then the fieldwork part of it was kind of exciting. So I had a group of 25,000 worship leaders uh, across the country that I had access to, and I created a survey, asked them all kinds of questions, you know, which statement brings you more hope, A or B, you know, and then on and on. But two of the questions I asked were about what song brings you hope or has brought you hope in a time of despair? 
And then what song brings your church hope? Now, out of the 25,000, only 1,000 responded, but that's still a ton of responses as far as data goes. And so I combined those two questions to discover sort of a top five list, if you will, of songs of hope. And then I analyzed those songs. And then on the experience side, I went deep with two churches. One was a Presbyterian church. One was a non-denominational charismatic church to find out how do people experience hope in worship services? Do they? So I had um, participant observation. Basically, I was there observing, taking notes. And then I had focus groups that were representatives from the churches. And we spent a lot of time talking about all this. That's a huge task. Thanks for laying that out, by the way. That's helpful even for me to hear. And I've heard it a few times, but uh, as I'm wrapping my mind around your research, but so you talk about five songs kind of rose to the surface. Yeah, five or six that kind of rose to the list. And then I, I compared that. There was uh, the songs that were mentioned by kind of the whole worship leader group. And then there were songs that were mentioned just by Pentecostal charismatic worship leaders and songs that were mentioned just by Presbyterian worship leaders. And there were one or two songs that were on everybody's list. You know, uh, I think a song like Cornerstone or uh, In Christ Alone was like, okay, that's a song that's on everybody's list, uh, the general list and the specific yeah. ones. And, yeah. Okay, so what were you most surprised to discover? You know, uh, on the one hand, it was not surprising to discover how Christ-centered the songs were. I mean, that was a wonderful thing in Christ Alone, Cornerstone. I've mentioned that, both of those songs. But I think maybe the thing that was most surprising was how little the songs dealt with the future. So I analyzed some imagery in the songs. Okay, how do we talk about earth and heaven? And it's funny, heaven is always spoken of positively, and the earth is almost always referred to negatively. Oh, wow. Yeah, like seas, storms, any creation image is referred to as like, basically it's a trouble. It's a mountain. Oh, it's got to be moved. It <laughs> yeah. sees, you know, oh, this is, this is terrible. Stormy seas, you know, but heaven. So in other words, earth is the location of our trouble and heaven is the location of our hope, which is not, it's not untrue, but it's interesting. Right. And so that's space, if you will. But time was the other dimension that was very interesting. We don't sing about the future very much. In fact, we don't sing about the past all that much either, you know. And actually, when I sliced it up by demographic, the charismatic worship leaders were the ones who were most concerned with the present tense. So everything about God's action was about what God is doing here and now. Now, listen, I'm a charismatic. I think on the one hand, that's one of the gifts of the charismatic movements is to say, God is in the now, God is here But it concerned me that songs about hope had no future orientation. That is so fascinating. And John, feel free to jump in whenever you want. I'm curious to know, are there reasons that you were able to discover why we're not singing about the future anymore? Like, are there trends in our theology or trends in terms of American Christianity generally that are causing this sort of... Is there a connection with the spirit of the age? Yeah. Being about quickness, relief. Immediate gratification. Happiness. I mean, I think yes, but I would have to qualify that a lot of that was sort of hypotheses for me, you know, like, could it be? And and I saw some of that in talking with people. I will say, I mean, maybe the most, the, the hypothesis that makes all of us squirm the most is that generally both of these churches are in fairly well-to-do suburbs mm. of big cities. And many of these songs that they named had also emerged from cities where life is pretty good. Now, If you contrast this, for example, to the slave spirituals uh, written by a group of people that were oppressed and were persecuted, they were not singing about the present tense. If they referenced the Red Sea or Egypt or the Exodus story, they were saying, God, would you please get us out of here? And so we may not like, you know, uh, to talk about the future as I'll fly away and all that, but you can't fault them for wanting to escape the moment. Whereas for us, I do think there's a little bit of the spirit of the age of comfort and affluence that has made us say, 
it's a luxury to sing about the present tense because my present is pretty good. Mm. Um, I, I will say, you, you know, so take the songs together with the services. So here's what's kind of interesting is uh, basically the songs were a lot about the present tense, about the personal perspective. The pronouns were almost all singular, I, me, my. And they were about the proximate space. They were about everything that's close and so, again, is that another spirit of the age thing, you know, like postmodernism, right. loss of narrative? We don't know story anymore. All I know is my truth in this moment, you know. And I wonder if we've confused what true need really is. Do we have these, like, um, these psychic needs? Of, I just want to feel comfortable. I want to feel comfort. I mean, churches are spending, we see it, spending millions to make everyone more comfortable. But when our deep need really is in the future hope of Christ or in Christ, which tells a much broader story than the just right today, can we help redefine people's... No, here's what real need is. Yeah. Your need today not necessarily is just to feel better about yourself. Yeah. And can your needs be reframed in terms reframed. of great hope? That's part of the, that's part of the challenge. Because the needs are real needs. You yes. Know, like our need for connection with others or our need for our job to go better. I mean, these are human needs, but there's a real deficiency sometimes in fixing those needs in the great hope that we have or those desires in the great desire that lies behind all desires, which is the hope for the return of Christ. Right. So there's a there's a challenge here for worship leaders and pastors to think more critically about, hey, okay, so speaking to the felt need and addressing the felt need is not a wrong thing. God made us, so that means that those felt needs arise out of our creatureliness. But we have to find a way not to just speak to that. There's more. Yeah, there's more to the story beyond that. Yes, and in some ways, our job as pastors and worship leaders is to awaken a hunger in people to say, "Are there any appetites in you which the present moment cannot satisfy? You know, that, that would make you long for this." So the other, maybe the most surprising thing about the, the the work is, so that's the songs, right? But on the other hand, when I spent time with people in these focus groups, hope was a pretty consistent experience for them. I mean, some of them said every time, every single time I go to church, I feel this. And I said, really? And they said, oh, undoubtedly, other people from the Presbyterian church, they said, we never want to miss a service. This is so huge for us. So it was consistent. Not only that, but the kind of hope they experienced was resilient. So, I mean, I talked to some people in my focus group that were going through, we talk about real needs. They're going yeah. through some difficult stuff, health issues, marriage and family struggles, and and ups and downs, unexpected curves in the road. And they felt that church was the place where they found hope. That's fascinating. I think that's my that's one of my favorite parts anyway of your research is that there's just to be super technical and nerdy here, there's what I'd call an asymmetry between encoded hope and the worship songs and then experience hope. That's right. But I don't know that that's an entirely contemporary phenomenon either. I think about, you know, like one of my favorite hymns, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? So you're going through a hard time and that song comes to you, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And it's not really about future hope, but there's something about singing it that certainly does inspire hope. So there's got to be a missing piece then here, like if encoded hope and yeah. experienced hope, how we lyricize about hope and how we experience hope are different. What's the piece of the puzzle there that you discovered that's missing? Yeah, you, you just put your finger on it. I mean, that's exactly it. What I appreciated about the way I was encouraged to approach this research was to let the fieldwork research pose fresh theological questions rather than to come to it 
with a predetermined thing and to say, ah, aha, as we suspected, modern worship. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, it raised some questions about why that could be, how do we account for this discrepancy, right? And the place that I went to in my work is the theology of the Holy Spirit. And specifically, the Holy Spirit is the experience of God's presence. And, you know, technically, theologically, people will say, oh, the Spirit is actually God's future presence in the now. So, you know, if you think about that, people don't have to be singing about God in the future to feel hopeful. They just have to experience His presence. And that's what we're all trying to do, right, John? I mean, you've talked about this presence-based worship leading. Completely. And I think as you're articulating your research too, there seems to be something that happens in our souls when we're singing these things together. Yeah. Um, as opposed to listening yeah. to them. And I'd love for you to touch on that. Because one of the things that with modern worship, it, it's gotten so good. Yeah. Yeah. That maybe in a way, not intentionally, we've communicated, hey, enjoy this. Yeah. Enjoy our offering and even kind of giving permission to the people to not really sing along, have to sing. Yeah. And so I feel like our churches are filled with people, but maybe our singing's lessening, right. but they were experiencing hope, but we're listening too much. Maybe there's that gap there. And, it's an interesting uh, thing. I mean, there was a really fascinating study that shows that a chemical is released in the brain when a group of people sing together and it makes you feel this feeling of positivity and uplift, you know? And so I think God has made us yeah. in a way to experience hope when we sing together. And to that point, it can work with however we're made. Like for the Presbyterians, a lot of their experience of hope was through a cognitive sort of thing, yep. oh, the, the message of the song or the sermon or the structure of the service or actually even the silence and the space in their services, right? Fascinating. And then the charismatics would say, oh, it's the energy. It's the energy in the yeah. room. And I just think, isn't God wonderful? Because he meets us in the way that he's made us so different and detailed and delightful. It's super fascinating. The thing about the Holy Spirit is the thing that gets me. And I think about that connection between the Holy Spirit and hope. And I always go to Romans 5 on mm. this where Paul says that hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So if the Holy Spirit is the experience of the love of God in this moment, there's an assurance that we have that if I'm loved in this moment, I'm loved in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. And now we're into the realm of eschatology right. without ever invoking the name. That's exactly we're right it. there. I think what's interesting is only on paper can you distinguish between hope and comfort. I, right. I, I think, you know, yeah. but in your heart and in your experience, hope feels like comfort. And so when people say, I feel hope, what they're saying is, I have the sense of God's presence with me. And so theologically, we say, oh, that's because the Holy Spirit, who's the foretaste of the future, the deposit, the down payment, the first, you know, this is why we're experiencing this. We're tasting the future now. So the Holy Spirit is God's future presence. The Holy Spirit is God's sort of incarnational presence, if you will, through our minds and our emotions and all that stuff. But the third thing that was really a way to kind of stitch in some of the psychology is from a cognitive standpoint, hope happens when you feel a sense of agency, like I can do this, right? And pathway, I know how to do this. Well, listen, what are we doing when we sing worship songs? We're ascribing to the Lord power and strength and might. We're basically saying, God, you're the mighty God. You alone can save. You can rescue all of these things. So by just saying who he is as a mighty savior, you know, redeemer, all of this stuff, 
it's going to produce hope because we've basically transferred agency upward to God. We've basically said, look, I don't have a clue, but you can do this. Part of what's great about your research is that it is academic. It's academic. It's a dissertation, right? But it also sort of (laughs) throws a little mud at the ivory tower that wants to look at the church and say, what you're doing is deficient. Well, It may or may not be. When you get down to brass tacks and how people are actually, like looking at the data, how they're actually experiencing, how they are experiencing it. So, But now I want to ask the question that probably some of our listeners are wanting to ask as they're listening to you here. And it's a question I've asked you before. So if this is true, if people can experience profound hope even in the midst of deficient worship songs, right? Well, why does it matter that we improve? Right. Does it matter at all that we improve our <laughs> worship songs? I mean, I please you start. No, John, <laughs> you've written. I mean, I, and I got to say this: you've written my favorite songs about hope, and you've specifically tried to include the full narrative. You know what Christ has done, what Christ will do, and I, I just think the fact that God, in His mercy, meets us <laughs> is not an excuse for us to be sloppy, right. you know? And as hard as we work as preachers, we want songwriters to work that way, don't we? I mean, imagine being a worship leader in the house where a doctor is doing his dissertation on songs. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe just the fear of man has caused me to write <laughs> with a more, a wider perspective. I hope that we are just fighting through this. I hope that we're more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I hope that we're tapping into more than our emotion of what the month needs, but how about what the thousand years needs? Yeah. And uh, my good friend and oversight here at the church wrote, I exalt thee. That song is decades of being sung by the church and has many more decades. And uh, why? I think it's not just true this month. Uh, yeah, that's right. not just a response to something that happened. And that the real good things, real yeah. honest things, we don't, we don't belittle those things. But I think we address the realities of our day better by singing about something that transcends above it, yeah. singing about something that's much greater than it. I think it's great to sing about our present pain. I'd write songs like that. I sing those songs. But there is something about when the church comes together to sing about something quite a bit greater, quite a bit higher, quite a bit stronger and it's not avoidance it ends up being actually dealing with the pain i think more directly so john you and glenn i mean you guys have been colleagues for a lot of years now mm-hmm. and you both started kind of in the same domain over here in the worship domain and and so the journey has been similar i'm really interested to know from you just as your journey has mapped you know with glenn's a little bit yeah. how has it shifted yeah. your writing and yeah. how has it shifted your way of thinking about how you steward the worship moment on sunday mornings yeah I, i'm glad you said journey because it's been exactly that. Uh, we could share plenty of stories of how we weren't as thoughtful mm-hmm. as we are now. I remember when Glenn started diving into this thing, it was like, wow. So I kind of went on a little parallel, vicariously through Glenn journey on what are we singing? And are we just responding to some things or are we singing some things that could help shape belief? Because um, we've seen the power of our singing, the strength of us coming together to sing. So it has just gotten in me. It's gotten in my bones to look at these things and not to be critical of what's out there. Because I think at the end of the day, I hope that most of us are trying. Yeah. 
you know, I hope that most of us are trying to be intentional and not just write for, but I've also been in writing sessions, a ton of them where someone says, no, let's not say that. Let's just say this. Cause that's, I could sing that because I'm it going through this and, yeah. and it might water it down and, but it might make it more accessible. And so I've become, I mean, I'm 38 now. I, and when I was in my twenties, it's like, no, don't take those risks because you want to succeed. And I kind of need to succeed because right. I need to prove to myself that God, has called me. But that is the edge that you have to live on if yes. you're going to be a responsible worship leader. And mm-hmm. the responsibility is not just I'm responsible to the great tradition mm-hmm. of the church, but it's also I'm responsible to trying to get these truths yes. in people's heads and in their hearts and on their lips. And that means that I have to say profound things yes. in a pithy way. That's yes. a huge it's challenge. Huge. It's a huge challenge, huge challenge. And I think, you know, John, you talk about some of these writer sessions. I know one of the things we've wrestled through is to encourage writers to not just think of theology as the fence. You know, like, oh man, am I in bounds? Am I out of bounds? You know, is this is this okay? Totally. Right? But to let theology and the great tradition be a doorway. You know, to say, okay, what about the theology of the incarnation? What about the Trinity? You know, I know we've had some conversations about that here at New Life. Can we sing more in a Trinitarian way? And I think, you know, all this stuff about hope. In Revelation, the songs say, the one who was and is and is to come. So by singing about the one who is to come, I mean, that is a part of who God is. It is a part of God's nature. What will happen? What will come? Yes. To sing some of those things. That the creator will be the redeemer and how that plays out and how that can inspire our worship as it does in heaven. It sounds like what you're saying, Glenn, is that the experience of hope that people have is wonderful, even though our songs are deficient. If we can improve the level of our songs and how hope is encoded, that what we're doing is we can capture the energy, really, that's in people's hearts and give it a place to go and help them live maybe more Christianly and think more Christianly about who they are and what their place in the grand narrative of scripture is and all of that. Absolutely. And I hope what people hear as worship leaders and songwriters is what you're doing is very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly powerful. And the Holy Spirit breathes on it. Yeah. So let's allow him to make our craft the very best that it can be, you know? And when he breathes on that, how much more, you yes. know, uh, will it do? So I want to ask you one question just to close here out of your research. Talk to us about if you could speak to pastors and worship leaders, what would you encourage them, A, to do more of and B, to do less of (laughs) as a way of getting to a more faithful expression? Help locate people in the story. And I know we've said this when we've talked about the Bible and we've talked about preaching, but just even as worship leaders, help people locate themselves in the story. Where am I in this drama? Where am I on the road to? It's interesting, you know, I mean, lots of older hymns, even in the 1800s, had a fourth stanza that was a when we've been there kind of thing, you know, like a, we're on our way. And we've sort of lost that. We've lost the sense of linearity or progression or journey, you know? And I'm okay with singing just about the moment, God whispering, God, you know, that's that's okay. That's powerful too. But help people locate because when they leave church, they're going to find themselves with pain, with questions, with suffering, with struggle, and they need to know this is not the end. This is not the end. And more than that, what is coming is better than what is. Help them see that. Glenn, I remember a discussion we had probably seven, eight years ago that really helped me because as we were starting to kind of go back and forth on this idea, I remember asking you, Glenn, do I have to have every song tell the full story (laughs) and the full arc and the whole narrative in every song? Because that started to feel like a cage when there were so many unique things about God. And I remember you sat back and just said, 
No, you know what? If we could be mindful to address the more full story in our service, yeah. kind of start to finish, which includes your pastor, which yes. includes the table, which yep. includes... And then it may be in your 20-minute worship set, your 30-minute worship set, to kind of try to cover it, but it's not to a four-minute song. Man, that's so huge because no single sermon, no single song, no single church service can bear the weight of all of that, right? I think what I hope that this research can show is we've got a little ways to, to go with moving the needle a little bit. You know, we've maybe sort of been too much on the one side. So work on a song here or there, work on a sermon here or there, but absolutely services, the shape of the service itself needs to be a narrative. And this is also what Christian worship used to have is a narrative shape in their worship. So my ending piece actually in the thesis is addressing songwriters, yes, pastors and their sermons, yes, but actually the shape of our services itself too. And and together, we can kind of all shoulder this. And over the long run, we're giving people a wider story to enter to and hopefully a more brilliant hope to embrace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Mm-hmm.